0: Regenerative Wound Surgery, Practical Application of Regenerative Medicine in the OR, by Gillette and others. Abstract Chronic non-healing wounds cause significant morbidity and mortality and remain a challenging condition to treat. Regenerative wound surgery involves operative debridement of wounds to remove dead and healing impaired tissue and bacterial contamination, and subsequently, the application of regenerative medicine treatments to accelerate healing. Regenerative treatments aim to restore native tissue structure and function by targeting biological mechanisms underlying impaired healing. A wide range of regenerative modalities are used for treating chronic and complex wounds, including decellularized scaffolds, living engineered donor tissues, autologous stem cells, and recombinant growth factors. Each of these modalities has specific and sometimes complex requirements for implementation. The Advanced Wound Care Team, including OR staff members, should be aware of how these products are used and regulated. This article highlights some of the common and emerging regenerative treatments that are applied in wound surgery and focuses on how the products are used practically in the OR. Chronic Wounds cause a staggering degree of morbidity, mortality, and financial burden in the United States and worldwide. Although a vast array of treatments and protocols have been developed that have increased healing rates and reduced the complications and costs arising from non-healing wounds, a large fraction of chronic wounds remain resistant to treatment, leading to serious complications, including severe infections, loss of limbs, and loss of life. Recent advancements in regenerative treatments that aim to restore the native structure and function of damaged or missing tissues are leading to novel approaches to accelerate wound healing and prevent these dire consequences. Regenerative treatments, including biologic scaffolds, allogenic or autologous cells and tissues, and regenerative growth factors, are used in the OR to accelerate healing after wound debridement surgeries. Each of these types of technologies may pose unique practical challenges for surgeons and perioperative nurses, such as tracking tissues moving in and out of the OR, correctly storing, removing, and preparing living allogeneic tissues, harvesting, processing, and assessing the viability and sterility of autologous stem cells, properly injecting stem cells or recombinant growth factors into the wound site, assessing outcomes and adverse events, and performing dressing changes and reapplying regenerative treatments. As part of the Advanced Wound Care Team, perioperative nurses play a key role in the safe and effective use of regenerative medicine products in the OR. Familiarity with issues and challenges related to implementing regenerative medicine will be essential as the clinical use of these new technologies expands. This article provides an overview of regenerative medicine treatments used in wound surgery with a focus on how they are used and managed in the OR. Wound surgery in the OR Wound surgery, the operative debridement of wounds to remove unhealthy non-healing tissue and infection, is the mainstay in the treatment of chronic wounds. Debridement allows for the removal of bacterial burden that causes inflammation and necrotic tissue, which stimulates wound healing. Although in many cases wound debridement can be safely performed in the office, there are several indications that warrant bringing the patient into the OR for debridement. If the patient cannot tolerate the pain involved with the debridement, anesthesia professionals in the OR can provide monitored IV pain management or general anesthesia in cases of sepsis or necrotizing fasciitis or when maximal doses of local anesthesia cannot adequately manage pain. If the patient has an infected wound, the surgical setting allows for thorough debridement and sterile deep tissue cultures that can guide targeted systematic antibiotic therapy. The OR also provides a safer option for patients taking anticoagulants, which can be continued during the procedure because the surgeon has more options for hemostasis. After a wound has been adequately debrided and cleared of infection, the perioperative team can then use regenerative medicine treatments to accelerate healing or to prepare the wound for a definitive closure, such as a graft or flap. Perioperative nurses should be cognizant of the regenerative treatments that are available for use on a variety of wounds. The RN circulator should be able to discern the different product requirements based on the manufacturer's instructions for use. It also is the responsibility of the RN circulator to examine the integrity of the packaging and verify the date of expiration and the specific size of the item, if applicable, and clearly communicate this information to the surgical team. The RN circulator should open the item for the scrub person to receive onto the sterile field using sterile technique. He or she may have to provide medication to reconstitute the regenerative treatment and should use a transfer device to dispense any medication onto the sterile field for reconstitution by the scrub person. The RN circulator also is responsible for tissue tracking to maintain the chain of custody of the tissue by documenting the required tracking information in the patient's medical record and completing any required paperwork before receiving the regenerative treatment onto the sterile field, the surgical technologist or scrub person should read the packaging with the RN circulator to confirm that it is the appropriate item in size and has not expired. The scrub person should secure the item in a safe place on the sterile field and begin reconstitution, if applicable. If medication is transferred to the sterile field for reconstitution, it should be immediately and clearly labeled. Communication among the surgical team is required to obtain the correct regenerative treatment needed for the patient because there are many regenerative treatment modalities available. When passing the regenerative treatment to the surgeon, the scrub person should indicate exactly what it is and any necessary details, such as the size and how it was reconstituted. Regenerative Treatment Modalities for Wound Surgery The variety of regenerative treatment modalities can make it difficult to understand the differences among them, particularly if staff members do not use them on a regular basis. Regenerative treatments for wounds can be divided into three general categories. Non-viable acellular scaffolds consisting of reconstituted extracellular matrices, ECMs, or decellularized tissues. Living cell and tissue-based treatments consisting of living cells with or without a tissue scaffold and recombinant growth factors consisting of native-like biomolecules that stimulate cellular healing activities. Non-viable acellular scaffolds Non-viable acellular scaffolds comprise most of the product that are cleared for management of wounds by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA. See Table 1. Scaffolds provide a structural support for cells to attach and migrate, thereby allowing tissue to grow. Such scaffolds can be categorized into three main types. 1. Decellularized tissue scaffolds, which consist of an intact native ECM, for example, scaffolding of proteins and biomolecules surrounding cells and tissue, from which live cells have been removed. 2. Regenerated naturally derived scaffolds, which consist of various components of ECM, for example, collagens, glycosaminoglycans, that have been purified and then reconstituted into an engineered matrix, and 3. Synthetic biopolymer scaffolds, which consist of synthetic molecules that mimic the structure and function of native ECM. Most of the products in this category are cleared by the FDA 510K process for management of a broad range of wound types, meaning the FDA considers them equivalent to previously approved products for wound management. The approved wound types include partial and full thickness wounds, pressure injuries, venous leg ulcers, BLUs, diabetic ulcers, chronic vascular ulcers, tunneled or undetermined wounds, surgical wounds, for example, donor sites, grafts, post-mose surgery, post-laser surgery, post pediatric surgery, wound dehiscence. Trauma wounds, for example, abrasions, lacerations, skin tears, and draining wounds. Some products derived from human donor tissues are not regulated as medical devices, but rather as human transplant tissue, that is, human cells, tissues, and cellular and tissue-based products, HCTPs. Human cells, tissues, and cell and tissue-based products must come from a licensed manufacturer that ensures the tissues are free of pathogens. They also need to meet FDA guidelines for minimal manipulation. For example, processing does not change inherent physical or biological characteristics. And homologous use. For example, the graft serves the same function in the recipient as in the donor. Human cells, tissues, and cell and tissue-based products should be tracked using tissue tracking systems. However, 510-K cleared products do not require tracking. In general, the ECM scaffolding of acellular scaffolds supports cellular migration, angiogenesis, granulation tissue formation, and re-epithelialization. Scaffolds containing collagen also may act to reduce the activity of matrix metalloproteinases that are produced in excess in some chronic wounds and cause an abnormally high rate of collagen degradation that impairs healing. Because the ECM composition, growth factors, and processing of each product vary considerably, the biologic response of the wound environment is also expected to vary. Little is known about the mechanism of action at the cellular level for most products in this category because most have not been extensively tested through clinical trials that study the effect of the treatments on cellular function in the wound. Determining how various types of scaffolds affect cellular healing activity through assessment of wound histopathologic biomarkers is an area of active investigation by our group and others. Use of non-viable acellular scaffolds in the OR Non-viable acellular scaffolds are relatively simple to implement in the OR. Most can be stored at room temperature with a long shelf life, are packaged sterilely, and can be applied without specialized tools or techniques. When HCTPs are used, the handling personnel need to follow the appropriate tissue tracking processes. Many of these products can be applied weekly after surgical debridement in the OR if the wound is free of acute infection. Non-adhesive secondary dressings, that is, not in direct contact with the wound, often are used to cover the scaffold that is in direct contact with the wound. Perioperative nurses should be familiar with the product-specific instructions for use because many products appear similar but have specific requirements for initial application, selection of secondary dressings, and dressing changes. Some products are oriented, such that one side of the product should contact the wound bed. Orientation usually is indicated directly on the product itself by embossed markings or a cut corner. Operating room clinicians should be familiar with expected wound outcomes and the appearance of products as the tissue heals, and be aware of potential adverse events, such as infections or allergic reactions. It is important to understand the manufacturer recommendations for dressing changes when a patient returns to the OR for a follow-up debridement and reapplication of the product. For example, decellularized porcine urinary bladder matrix instructions indicate that any product remaining on the wound should be left intact and may develop a brown, caramel-like gel appearance and a distinct smell as the device is reabsorbed and incorporated into the wound, which could be mistaken for non-viable tissue and removed erroneously. Other product instructions for use may recommend removing or debriding any remaining scaffold before reapplication. As an example, Figure 1 shows a complete cycle of application of an antimicrobial, collagen-based dressing for treatment of a VLU. In this case, the remaining product is removed and debridement is performed before reapplication of the scaffold. Living cell and tissue-based treatments Living cell and tissue-based wound treatments can be broadly categorized as allogeneic products created from donor cells or tissues and autologous cells and tissues that are derived from the patient's own tissue. See Table 2. Allogenic off-the-shelf products include cryopreserved viable human donor tissues, such as placental membranes, cadaver skin, and engineered tissues made from donor human fibroblasts and keratinocytes added to collagen-based or synthetic scaffolds. Cryopreserved human tissues are considered HCTPs and should be tracked. The FDA has approved engineered living skin substitutes for VLUs and diabetic foot ulcers, DFUs, through the pre-market approval process, that is, demonstration of safety and effectiveness of a Class III medical device. Autologous cell and tissue treatments are derived from the patient, either at the time of the wound surgery or in advance. Cell-based treatments consist of individual cells or cell populations that have been isolated from the surrounding tissues in ECM. Tissue-based treatments include native tissue structures in ECM, such as an autologous skin graft. Regenerative living cell therapies can be categorized according to the donor, that is, autologous or allogeneic. Tissue source, for example, bone marrow adipose tissue. Isolation method, that is, mechanical or enzymatic breakdown of tissue. And whether they are cultured in vitro to expand the cell population or used directly after isolation. Autologous cells are often preferred to allogeneic cells because they avoid potential rejection by the patient's immune system and transmission of disease from a donor transplant, although they do require the production of cell therapy for each individual patient. Unlike allogeneic therapies that are derived from donors and expanded to make a cell bank that can treat many patients, autologous cells are taken from the same patient and made into a therapy for only that patient. For example... Via isolation and expansion in cell culture, or modified through treatment. The FDA's regulation of autologous cell therapy, ACT, is nuanced and dynamically evolving. If a cell product meets the requirements for minimal manipulation and homologous use, that is, as defined by the FDA, the FDA does not regulate therapeutic use, and physicians can apply it as part of their medical practice without FDA approval. However, if the tissue is more than minimally manipulated or its use is non homologous, the product is then regulated as a biologic medication requiring FDA approval. It has been challenging to define clearly the types of processing steps that constitute more than minimal manipulation or uses considered non homologous. Historically, as promising new science emerged showing that autologous regenerative cells from bone marrow or adipose tissue could promote healing and regeneration in multiple models of tissue damage, physicians began to experiment with providing ACT for a broad range of acute and chronic conditions outside of the purview of FDA and Institutional Review Board-approved clinical trials. However, preparation and use of a patient's own cells for therapy presented a number of significant safety and technical challenges. Before the FDA began strictly regulating ACTs from out of tissues, Physicians would use home-cooked methods to prepare autologous regenerative cells from adipose tissues, using reagents in facilities that did not meet cellular good manufacturing practice standards. Though physicians were largely well-intentioned and saw promise that ACT could help their patients, these practices created a number of major problems. In particular, the cells and excipients, for example, saline solutions media carriers, that were being injected back into patients were not being characterized in terms of viability, surface markers, that is, specific proteins that identify the stem cells, residuals and contaminants, or sterility. Therefore, physicians did not have evidence that the therapies they injected were being consistently produced. Although a few major safety issues arose with autologous cell use, evidence of efficacy remained largely anecdotal, which limited broader enthusiasm for the potential of ACT. Recently. Devices have been developed that can automate the process for the isolation of sterile regenerative cells in the hospital and OR setting. Minimally manipulated adipose tissue harvested via liposuction is an emerging treatment that has shown promising efficacy and safety for wound healing. The advantage of using adipose tissue compared with isolated adipose derived stem cells is that the procedure is simple to perform without specialized equipment and can be completed within the scope of the medical practice for wound treatment. Because the tissue is minimally manipulated, a smaller volume of adipose tissue may be used, for example, approximately 50 milliliters, compared with the amounts needed for isolating cells, for example, approximately 300 milliliters, which may reduce donor site discomfort and the potential for complications. In contrast with non-viable scaffolds, which passively stimulate local cells to induce a healing response, Living cells and tissues can actively respond to the wound environment and secrete factors that further stimulate and coordinate the healing response. A review of mesenchymal stem cells showed that, in most cases, implanted cells persist for weeks to months rather than become permanently incorporated as fully differentiated cells. Therefore, many living cell and tissue-based treatments may need to be repeated to heal a wound completely. Similar to scaffolds derived from various sources, The varying composition of cell and tissue-based treatments can lead to different mechanisms of action. A recent study revealed that an allogeneic tissue-engineered living skin substitute increased growth factor production, inflammatory signaling, and keratinocyte activation, causing a shift in gene expression patterns of VLU tissue from a chronic to acute wound phenotype. A literature review of stem cell use for DFUs found that they can reduce inflammation, promote angiogenesis and induce EMC remodeling, which allows refractory wounds in a persistent inflammatory state to continue through the stages of healing. Similar results were found in mice. The therapeutic effect of ACTs has been attributed to their modulation of the immune system via lymphocyte suppression, growth factor release, and inhibition of inflammatory cytokine production. With all ACTs, there is inherent variability in the product because of the health and biologic characteristics of the patient. Stem cells from patients of advanced age or with diabetes may be impaired and less able to stimulate healing compared with those from younger or healthier patients. Additional clinical studies are needed to determine how various preparation processes and patient characteristics of autologous cells and tissues affect patient outcomes. Development of methods to assess quantitatively cellular biomarkers, that is, proteins that indicate cell identity or function, and cytokines produced by the cells before their implantation, followed by an assessment of the effect of treatment on biomarkers of the wound environment, will enhance understanding of the essential biological properties and mechanisms of action of cell-based treatments. Use of living cells and tissues in the OR Living cell and tissue-based treatments can be more complex to implement in the OR compared with non-viable scaffolds. Off-the-shelf cryopreserved products should be stored frozen at negative 40 degrees Celsius, negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, or colder, thawed before use in 37 degrees Celsius, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, water bath, and rinsed thoroughly to remove cryoprotectants, that is, solutions that prevent damage to cells during the freezing and thawing process, before application. The intraoperative team is responsible for carefully keeping track of thawing temperatures, Not to exceed 37 degrees Celsius, thawing times according to product instructions, and time to application. For example, cryopreserved, human fibroblast derived dermal substitutes need to be applied within 30 minutes of thawing. Live products are most often maintained at room temperature before use, but typically have a very short shelf life. Packaging also can be more complex, such as when a tissue engineered living skin substitute is supplied in a Petri dish on a hydrogel media layer that delivers nutrients to the living construct. See Figure 2. Careful attention to product removal instructions is essential for maintaining sterility and viability of the product. For any living product, the person handling the product should avoid application of topical agents that could be cytotoxic, such as cleaning solutions, lotions, or ointments, to prevent loss of cell viability after application. Similar to non-viable scaffolds, living skin substitutes and cryopreserved human tissues may have a preferred orientation for application. Different products also may have different requirements for dressing changes and reapplication. For example, the first dressing change for a cryopreserved human fibroblast-derived dermal substitute should be performed after 72 hours, and subsequent wound preparation before reapplication should minimize the disruption of the previously applied construct. Compared with allogeneic living products, autologous cell and tissue-based treatments involve more complex preparation and logistics for tissue handling. Operating room staff members are intimately involved in handling and processing autologous cells and tissues and, therefore, should develop an awareness of best practices and AORN guidelines. New devices are available that automate the production of ACT at the point of care and provide a high degree of safety and characterization, for example, Sterility, viability, cell composition of the ACT product. Researchers have reviewed the details of the methods and devices for production of regenerative cells from bone marrow and adipose tissue. These technologies have enabled consistent and safe production of autologous cells for rigorous, multi center controlled trials and broader clinical application. Given the need for manufacturing individualized doses, there are multiple potential advantages to using adipose derived cells versus other cell types, for example, bone marrow-derived cells, including the ease of fat harvest, increased yield of therapeutic cells without the need for expansion of the cell population, the reported safety and efficacy, and the potentially increased anti-inflammatory activity. Devices for point-of-care adipose-derived regenerative cell production allows for rapid isolation of adipose-derived regenerative cells from a patient's adipose tissue. To ensure cell quality and dose consistency, devices to measure cell concentration and viability can be employed to set the cell dose and confirm adequate numbers of live cells. Samples of the injected cells also should be sent for rapid bacterial cultures so that providers can be alerted to potential contamination and initiate monitoring or antibiotic therapy if potential harmful organisms are detected. Even with the ability to produce pure, viable, and sterile ACT consistently at the point of care, discovering the best mode of delivery to the site of injury for maximum efficacy poses additional challenges. Although IV-injected stem cells can hone into sites of injury or disease, it also has been shown that many cells may become trapped in the lungs, and thus IV injection may pose greater safety concerns because of the higher risk of embolism. Local injection to injury sites is the preferred route of administration for most clinical studies. However, the optimal cell concentration, volume, location, depth, number, and spacing of injections into a defect remains underexplored. The shear forces during injection may damage cells, causing significant viability loss and potentially requiring careful evaluation of needle diameters, injection rates, and fluid viscosity. Because the effects of ACT are attributed to temporary local stimulation of healing through growth factor delivery rather than permanent integration, the effect on healing also may be transient. Thus, dosing regimens for chronic non-healing wounds also should be carefully investigated to optimize efficacy. Isolation, preparation, and characterization, that is, determining cell number and viability, of stem cell therapies can take considerable time. For example, three hours for enzymatic digestion models. And the patient will likely not wait in the OR throughout the entire procedure, requiring multiple trips to the OR for injection of cell therapy outside the OR. Whether debridement is best performed at the time of tissue harvest or immediately before injection of the isolated regenerative cells remains to be seen. Recombinant Growth Factors Native physiologic healing processes are coordinated by multiple cell types in the wound that secrete various growth factors and cytokines that are the key regulators of cellular healing activities, such as cell migration, differentiation, ECM deposition, and immune response. Identification of the growth factors involved in these mechanisms has led to the development of growth-factor-based therapies aimed at correcting deficits in the healing process. Recombinant growth factors mimic the function of their native cytokine counterparts to stimulate native biologic healing pathways. Major recombinant growth factors in development for wound treatment include vascular endothelial growth factor, basic fibroblast growth factor, granulocyte macrophage colony-stimulating factor, GM-CSF, and platelet-derived growth factor BB, PDGF-BB, see Table 3. Most of these factors are experimental or used off-label for wound treatment. However, BeCaplermin, a topical cream containing recombinant PDGF, has been FDA-approved to treat DFUs. A review of the literature found that recombinant growth factors stimulate healing activities through multiple mechanisms affecting multiple cell types in the wound. These factors have both direct effects, in which the molecule stimulates cells directly, and indirect effects in which the stimulated cells secrete additional cytokines and growth factors that affect the activity of other cell types. For example, GM-CSF promotes proliferation and differentiation of bone marrow-derived monocyte recursors into microphages, microfibroblast and endothelial cell differentiation, retinocyte proliferation and migration, macrophage activation, cytokine production, and recruitment of other inflammatory cells platelet-derived growth factor increases fibroblast proliferation. However, a study investigating in vitro proliferation of fibroblasts isolated from chronic VLUs found that fibroblasts derived from ulcers present for more than three years proliferated less than fibroblasts from venous ulcers present for shorter durations. Levels of growth factors such as PDGF have been shown to be lower in chronic wounds compared with properly healing wounds because of the highly proteolytic environment. Therefore, treatment with exogenous growth factors can potentially help correct these imbalances to restore proper healing activity. Use of recombinant growth factors in the OR. Application of recombinant growth factors in the OR is fairly straightforward because they are simply injected into the wound or applied topically. Lyophilized, that is freeze dried, growth factors are reconstituted in sterile water. And injected in 1 milliliter syringes using 25 gauge needles to minimize loss and waste of growth factors, which can be expensive. Suggested doses, routes, and frequency of administration of various growth factors for different wound types have been proposed and reviewed. For example, GMCSF is injected both in the subcutaneous area surrounding the wound and into the wound base, which could extend to the periosteum for deep wounds. Topical treatments are applied on a weight-per-wound area basis. Operating room clinicians should be aware of potential side effects and adverse events. Minor side effects can include rashes and a pain or burning at the injection or application site. Growth factor injections can be performed with IV sedation to limit the discomfort from potential side effects such as chills and headache. Although the risks are fairly low, some severe adverse events, such as acute lung injury, have been reported for recombinant GM-CSF. Combining Multiple Regenerative Modalities Chronic wounds may benefit from the application of multiple complementary modalities to maximize the healing response through targeting multiple mechanisms. Some studies have investigated enriching autologous fat grafts with adipose stem cells or platelet-rich plasma to improve the survival of the graft and angiogenesis in the wound bed clinicians can inject recumbent growth factors along with the application of allogeneic tissue-engineered living skin substitute to enhance microphage migration to the wound. Additional systematic studies are needed to elucidate the potential synergistic effects of different regenerative modalities on the healing of various chronic wound types. Tissue tracking in the OR Handling of allogeneic and autologous living cell and tissue-based therapies should be performed in a way that is aligned with the appropriate regulatory frameworks to maintain tissue viability and prevent disease transmission or infection. Therefore, the Joint Commission and the FDA have promulgated requirements for all facilities to adopt. According to the Joint Commission, the organization will need to be able to trace the chain of events or audit trail related to implanted tissue for both reporting and investigational purposes. For all allograft tissues delivered from a tissue supplier, for example, donor tissues or tissues engineered from donor cells, the tracking process begins when the tissue arrives at the hospital. A designated person responsible for receiving and logging tissues should first verify the integrity of the packaging to confirm that it is intact and that the temperature range during transportation was controlled and is acceptable. Each type of tissue should be handled according to the supplier or manufacturer's recommendations. Some tissues require ambient temperature ranges. However, other tissues may be packaged in dry ice to maintain a required temperature. It is also essential that the source facility from which the tissue originates is registered with the FDA and licensed by the state in which the implanting organization resides if that state requires licensure. For autologous tissues for reimplantation in the same facility, AORN has developed guidelines for the proper transfer of tissue from the sterile field, packaging, labeling, transport, and storage in the hospital. AORN guidelines address numerous types of tissues. Autologous skin grafts are the most relevant for patients with wounds. As clinical studies emerge in new autologous cell and tissue treatments, for example, bat grafting, the injection of bone marrow or adipose-derived stem cells, become commonplace in medicine... Providers should develop evidence-based protocols for handling these treatments. For all types of cells and tissues, it is critical that personnel maintain the chain of custody, which means they must monitor the locations and conditions in which the tissue is being stored. Personnel should monitor the temperature and record it in the log for any area in which the tissue is being stored, including refrigerators and freezers. After it is determined that the tissue will be used, the RN circulator should document the tissue manually or electronically to ensure that it is assigned to a patient who can continue to be tracked in case of an adverse event, for example, surgical site infection product recall. In the past, most of these processes have been performed manually. However, new systems that automate the tissue management process have helped to increase safety, reduce errors, minimize tissue waste, and improve the overall efficiency of tissue delivery. Automated tissue tracking can be accomplished via radio frequency identification or barcode technology. It is important that the information that is being tracked is bidirectional so that it is traceable from implant to patient and vice versa. The ability to trace important identifiers, such as the patient, lot number, and date of service, allows hospitals to contact patients immediately if there is a recall and to investigate if a patient has an infection or another adverse event occurred. In addition, some automated systems are able to submit product information electronically to the patient's electronic health record. Investigation and reporting of any adverse events is required by law because of the risk for tissue or donor infection. As with any process, auditing is essential to assess compliance. A team of key stakeholders – including perioperative administrators and nursing leaders, should implement a quality assurance program to identify and institute tissue handling protocols, procedures, storage requirements, verification processes, and record maintenance. Auditing can improve processes, ensure compliance, and assist facility personnel in staying apprised of adverse events. Conclusion Emerging regenerative medicine-based treatments hold great potential for improving chronic wound outcomes by targeting biologic mechanisms underlying impaired healing. These technologies can be more complex to implement than current standard wound dressings. Developing best practices for use is essential to improve the efficacy and safety of these products. For treatments in the OR, such as autologous stem cells, which may display inherent variability in biological characteristics and composition, it is important to minimize inconsistencies in treatment preparation and implementation to maximize their therapeutic effect. As these technologies are increasingly translated from the laboratory to the bedside, perioperative nurses, as a critical component of the Advanced Wound Care Team, will play a key role in developing the best practices for implementation of regenerative medicine in the OR.